Crash Course in History, Rebbe Bleiweiss, Session 12. The Chashmonim have, have, uh, are now the family dynasty. It's the only time in Bayis Shani, the 420 years of the Second Temple, uh, that the Jews are sovereign. And that's good news when it's good. And it was good, let's say, under the fifth and last of the brothers. Shimon uh, was a big tzaddik who reformed things, upgraded the quality of observance all over the country, and then was assassinated by his devious, conniving son-in-law. In a very sordid story, you could look, you could look you could, I'll, I'll send it to you, it's one of the details I'm going to skip right now. Um, his son was Yochanan Herkinus, who has the longest reign of, a, of, of one of the Hashmonaim, and starts out on a similar footing, not quite his father, but a good guy, a tzaddik who also tries to strengthen observance. And then something went sour, and we'll tell that story briefly now. Uh, initially, his, what, a part of his accomplishments is he fights a lot of local wars, and he winds up, he winds up expanding the boundaries of uh, of Judea, of Eretz Yehuda, um, back to it's described as in the days of David and Shlomo. I'm not quite sure that's accurate, but he does expand them considerably. Eretz Israel now gets almost a biblical dimension uh, north and, and even a little bit to the east uh, under Yochanan Hyrcanus. Now, when you get new land, what that sometimes means is you inherit, uh, usually means, you inherit the local population. That's not always so good, especially if you're talking about demographics, especially you know, in Israel, what are you going to do about such things? You have all the new people, the new people aren't Jewish. In fact, many of them are antagonistic to the notion of a Jewish state. Uh, and then they vote in the elections and they elect, I'm getting very modern on us right now, they elect people to the, to the government who actually work from within the government to subvert the government that they serve and the nation they serve to destroy it from the inside out. Wow, an irony of modern democracy, if ever I did hear one. You followed that logic there? Go That's what they have. In the 2007 war, the, the Hezbollahs, that round of fighting, the Hezbollahs, remember this? You guys were, you guys were up and semi-coherent, semi right? As, as thinking people. Do you remember the 2007, where they, where they ravaged the north of the country? During the war, during the war, a person who was a Chavar Knesset, a member of the, his name was Azmit Bushara, was found to have given secret information that only he as a government official had access to. He gave that to the enemy during wartime. I don't know if you understand um, international law, but this doesn't take an international lawyer to understand the basics. That is what they call high treason in most legal systems. It's a capital offense. Azim Bashar sits out, I think, in Qatar, uh, as in, in a luxury hotel till today. He's in exile from Israel because he comes back. He may be tried and, and, and may be found guilty and hanged. Um, forgiving Af uh, that's the that's the byproduct of such a, of such a country. So now Yochanan Herkinus has all this new tracts of land and all these non-Jews, including Edomim, descendants of Esav, and he leads a campaign that's quite controversial from our perspective of forced conversions. That's not the Jewish way. We're not a pros we're not the proselytizing types. Um, one of the reasons we're not the proselytizing types is that we like quality, not quantity. The 36 righteous people in any, in any given generation, that's, they, they, they um, hold sway and they determine the nature of the world. And, and we, we understand that the minority can actually determine the fate of history. So if you have lots of people who are suddenly part counted as the Jewish people, but they're not keeping Shabbos and they're not keeping kosher, that's not good for anybody, anywhere. And you had large groups of people, including these Edomi, converting. And some of the people who came in, among them were these, were these turkeys. By the one of the father's name is Antipater, who actually becomes a political wheeler and dealer in the last generations of the Hashmonim, all to our detriment. And even worse, he has a son that we're going to hear from soon enough by the name of 
in Hebrew called him Hordus, in English his name is Herod. Uh, by his own account called Herod the Great, but he was anything but. And uh, we'll hear about him too. So this is part. These are part of the ramifications of this of this campaign to convert the uh, um, the, the the locals. Uh, Yehuda Maccabee was not didn't do everything. Always on the up and up. One of the thing, one of the early things that Yehuda had done before he was assassinated was to forge a pact with the new empire. He was doing basic diplomacy. The new empire in the block was a well at the time they were just a little insignificant power called Rome. And Yehuda Maccabee is the first to make a pact with them, and Yochanan Hyrcanus reinforces that pact. And then it all went bad. See, rumors circulated that at a time earlier, at some earlier point, Yochanan's mother, Shimon's widow, um, Yochanan's mother had been held captive before she had the kinder. They were Kohanim. See? Anybody realize what's going on here? Anybody have to smell any halachic issues coming? Yeah, She's held captive. You can't be divorced, excellent. What do we assume halachically and historically, sadly, but really true, about captive women? Probably. Probably. They can't, how are they supposed to? It's not their fault, but that's the reality. And then she was returned to her husband, and then she had children. Among them, the new. And they didn't quite use the term king, but he's the ruler of the Jews. But later, Hashemin will start to use the term king. So, so if, a, if a woman had returned and said, no, it's okay, that didn't happen, that didn't happen, do we still believe it? It's a discussion in Chazal. There are, Chazal tried to be lenient because of the extremists of the case. So in certain cases, let's say in one story, there was a, her child was with her, and the child was speaking what's called the fituma. He had no reason to lie. He didn't know the halacha. And he said, actually, I was with my mother the entire time. And based on his testimony, they were able to find a leniency for her. So there are grounds for leniency, but Mi'ikardin, it's a problem. In this case, too, it was not 100%. There were all kinds of grounds for leniencies, but in the, in the millstream of leniency rumors... Leniency for what? I think I'm missing something. Yeah. Leniency for what? Leniency in terms of forcing her to divorce her husband. Oh, okay. That's because if she, Yeah, I didn't yeah. finish that. Thank you for making me spell that out. So in, in terms of her, her forcible divorce from her husband... Um, she didn't divorce, and in the end, Yochanan Hyrcanus is born, and he's he's rises in power, and rumors start circulating that he was an illegitimate Cohen, and that's not something that, that people take kindly to. And the story is actually told in our Gemara later on. I don't know if I don't know if we'll get to it this year, but it's told in our Gemara. It's told in the name of this. It happened to Yanaya Melech, but the Doris Rishonim says that this is actually Yochanan Hyrcanus. I won't get into that tangent in terms of uh, right now, in terms of who it was, but according to Doris Rishonim, this is our figure right now. And I'm trying to, trying to abbreviate the story. It's told in sordid detail in our Gemara. It's a very engaging story, very significant too. Um, but the upshot is, is that there's a fringe guy who's hanging out with the rabbis who, start, who, who says, he's, he voices this idea that the ruler, Yochanan Hyrcanus, is illegitimate. And that, and, and that his mother, there's something bad happened with his mother. And, and, and Yochanan Hyrcanus is appalled and he wants to take action. What is his punishment? He asked the local rabbis, what should I do with him? And the rabbis say he's deserving of punishment. He should get malkos. But Yochanan Hyrcanus says that's too mild. And he's aggravated and worse. He's got an advisor standing, in his, standing on his side talking to him. He's a tzduki who's anti-rabbi. That's the nature of the times. We're talking about sectarian times. The Jews are going against the Jews. You already hear the undercurrents, undercurrents of what, they, what you're familiar with. The destruction of the Second Temple was due to 
Sinas Chinam, gratuitous hatred. You're already hearing that in this story. This is taking place a couple centuries before the destruction. This is mid Second Temple period, but um, but but the king has been getting riled up, and he says these rabbis, in in determining such a mild sentence, are themselves guilty of insubordination, and a person who's morad lemalchus is chayev misa, and he kills him. He kills, oh, that was nicely timed. He kills all the rabbis, uh, sound effects, always welcome. Uh, he kills, right. Uh, he kills all the rabbis who are present. It's not all the rabbis, but the leading rabbis go into hiding. At the time, the leading rabbis, Yeshua ben Prachia goes down to Egypt at this time. According to the Gemara, according to summary shown him, he's there with a certain disciple. Do you know this Gemara that I'm referring to? Yoshua ben Prachia. When he returns with the disciple, the disciple makes... Um, offbeat comments about the innkeeper's wife. Oh, it was Yashu. Yashka. Oh, yeah, Yashka did go to Egypt, didn't he? That's according to this story. So this is around this time in history, which is a little bit hard to parse with the other histories that, that date Yashka a couple hundred years later. It's a cash in its ass, but, it, but perhaps this takes place at this time, and there are all kinds of ways of reconciling that. We'll get to Christianity. We'll talk about the early Christians soon enough. Uh, I don't know if we'll get to it today, but there's Rashim on Sunday. The... Uh, the upshot is he executes the Chazal and he goes, he goes on a rampage against uh, people keeping Torah. And the Gedolim flee and um, the Tzedukim take over. And we're seeing now the beginning of the end. The Tzedukim, the Sadducees, they now are vying for power and they, they, they particularly have their eyes set on one institution, probably more than any other institution. Maybe you know what I'm referring to? Sanhedrin, they enter, they infiltrate, no question, under Yochanan, but, but they... The Kahuna, thank you. The Kohen Gadol now is up for auction, don't you know? Actually, how does a Kohen Gadol classically during Bais Rishon, how is that determined who's the Kohen Gadol? Merit. Sanhedrin, it's meritocracy, right? Now it's, it's the highest bidder. That's such a corrupt system. So you have people who are serving in this. Think about this. In all of Bais Rishon, how many years? 410 years. Bais Rishon, there were 12 people who served in the holy function of Kohen Gadol. Which means they learned, they had Arichus Yami, they had long lives. Who was one of the most famous of the Kohen Gadol during the Bayes Rishon? Shimon Tzadik, right across the street from us. Okay, Shimon Tzadik was one of the most, in fact, he is, when the, when the, um, when, with the tefillah that we sing, one of my favorite songs we sing on, on the Chazar Sashat and Musaf and Yom Kippur, we sing this song about the Kohen Gadol emerging from Lifnaim and Lifnaim, Emes Ma Nehedar Ayafohen Gadol. The verses there are actually written referring to. Shimon Tzadik. So you had, let me finish the thought, Henry, you're on, oh, I know, this is a, this is a topic near and dear to you, right? So, so 12 Kohen Gadols served during the, during the first temple period, during the second temple period, 420 years, not much difference. How many Kohen Gadols were there? 370-something. Well over 300. Do the math. That means most of them did not live out their term for the year. Because when you go you go inside on Yom Kippur, on the holiest day, the holiest place in the world, and you're not worthy, you're a Russia, well then, they kill you. And that's why they had to start tying the rope to the, to the feet so they could drag him out because nobody could go in there. Even angels are not allowed to go in there. That would, that would steadily become the state of affairs during this very difficult period. The state reverts now to policies that now are going to recall the Greek policies before the Hashmonim rose up. We're going to celebrate Hanukkah next week, right? And before, before this happened, now we're going back to that old, that old state of affairs, reinforcing what I said yesterday, that Hanukkah is not really about the revolution because the revolution was short-lived. 
And the, 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 the tragedy is they reverted to their old ways, and now it's the Jews going against Jews, reinforcing the decrees against the Torah. There is a lot of intrigue. And again, in the fuller version of the history that I, I, somebody said today that, somebody said to me, who's not here right now, but is very into history, he said that he has a hard time following this because I'm going too fast. And I'm empathic, and I, I, I'm sorry if that's the case. Um, I am going fast. When I do this properly and I slow it down, we learn all the intrigue. And Yochanan Herkinus has three sons. One is worse than the other. Uh, they're all Sadukim, they're all Hellenized. He did nothing to stop them. <coughs> There's tremendous intrigue. There's very dramatic death scenes. One of them, one of them chokes on his own blood, and the blood spills out of the courtyards, the base of Mikdash. Um, anyway, <coughs> the final of his sons, not the youngest one, but the final one is a fellow by the name of Alexander Yanai, who's one of the great turkeys of history, uh, big Russia. He marries his brother's uh, Yevama, his chi- childless sister-in-law, her, she's actually a Tzedekis. It's a strange shidduch. Her name is Shlomis, or later on called Shlomtzion. And Alexander Yana marries Shlomtzion, and give, it confers legitimacy, marrying the, now they're using the term king, marrying the king's widow. Now he's, you know, like he's legitimate there. Uh, let's say on the plus side, because everybody has his virtue, so he expands the borders. Yana expands the board. Yana Amelech explains the board. This is not the person we named our son for. There's a there's a later greater Yana who's who's one of the later Tanaim. Uh, that was that was the one we had in mind. Um, but this Alexander Yana expands the borders of Eretz Yisrael. Get this idea to the uh, extent that become the halachic borders of Israel recorded. What's called the Brice the Tchumim that determine more or less where we keep agricultural laws in Eretz Yisrael. Meaning they're the borders that we care about insofar as many, many, if most, halachas pertain. Where is Shemitah kept? Do you keep Shemitah down in Elat? No. No, because they're outside the bright the Tuchumim. Do you keep Shemitah in Akko? No. Yeah. Yes, Trick yes, question. Yes, yes, yes. Trick question. You do, you because do. half of Akko is inside Eretz Yisrael, half of it's outside. Which half is, another, is an interesting question. Right? So you have to know the bright Tuchumim to determine uh, where the borders are. Th- that price is more or less determined by Alexander Yanai's borders. Yeah, go ahead. Would it be halakhically permissible to, to cede some of the land in which we're, in which is so halakhically now Eretz Yisrael? Is it halakhically possible to cede some of Are you allowed to halakhically cede some of Eretz Yisrael since it's Kedusha, a uh, big issue in the post very relevant today with regards to the peace talks and so on? Most post are of the opinion that as much as we have, Jews should have Jewish land, but A, given the fact that the state as it's not exactly a halachic state, to put it mildly, and B, the fact that we're in ongoing war, you have to always in halacha weigh different variables, and in this case, Jewish life is more important, and so purely hypothetically, it's very hard to gauge if this is a real issue or not, if you could say by giving up land that it would bring peace and security for the Jews, then maybe you could trade the land. The question is, and this is really where the politicians weigh in, and where it is obviously a big debate across the spectrum, although uh, these days the right wing seems to be winning this debate, um, and that is, that is that by giving land, many actually understand that that means it's more dangerous to Jews, not less, and that more Jewish blood would be spilled, but that's a debate that we would really need a, a prophet to tell us who's right, to really know that for sure. We can feel confident in some of, you know, I, I imagine probably in the room, 
generally religious Jews are more right-wing than left-wing. That's my experience in life. Um, so probably there's consensus built around that idea. I just point out to you, there's nothing inherently true about that, uh, that idea, and we need a, a Navi of some sorts, or we need Das Torah more relevantly. We need the opinion of the Gedolim to determine what, what the right course of action is. Interesting question. Yeah, well, Ezra. I understand it isn't a Jewish government, but for, to give up property which Jews live in Israel, that's, is that not an issue? Like, they get to, to Again, if, if by doing that you might, let's say hypothetically, you could save a life, What's more important? Ultimately, we, we care about life more, if really that could happen. But, but, so you, you're saying that Pico of Nefesh could, could have... Sure, sure, if it does. Again, it's hypothetical and debatable whether it really would save a life. Again, there's the opposite, uh, opposite issue. Um, under Alexander Yanai, the, um, the Sanhedrin at this point is totally corrupt. He brings in all of his old buddies. And it's all Sadukim, and they're totally corrupt. They introduce a Hammurabi-style... You know, the Hammurabi code, yeah. right? A Hammurabi, you know, literally, eye for right, eye. Uh, literally an eye for an eye. You know, the guy, the guy does malpractice, a uh, doctor does malpractice, cut off his hands. Those kinds of laws, totally random, relevant, nothing to, nothing to do with Torah. And that's the Sanhedrin these days in these terribly uh, oppressive times. Um, but interestingly, as much as it's an odd marriage, but the king continues to honor his wife. She's such a fine, kind person, Shlomzion, that even the Russia sees her virtue. And he does something quite extraordinary. He, ha he invites her. She sits in the Sanhedrin too. And again, she does it because she tries to mitigate the damage. We're talking about an unusual, extraordinary time. She's trying to bring in the good guys. And the good guys, she has connections to, among other things, she has a very famous brother. His name is Shimon ben Shetach, and he's Gadol Hador. He's one of the Zugos. Remember when we talked about the Zugos yesterday, the pairs that led the Jews? Well, Shimon ben Shetach is one of them. And so she, now that now she's got, she's got an inside herself, she says, I'm going to have my brother come too, sweetheart. And he says, okay. And he does. And Shimon ben Shetach very cleverly um, finds a way, those, those rabbis, they're so smart, he finds a way of puzzling each, slowly, gradually, each of the present Sadduki members of the Sanhedrin and replacing them with his own buddies, this time Chazal, until he finally upgrades the Sanhedrin and makes it kosher again. That's how it's done. Uh, right? The good guys do sometimes win in history too. The, uh, he also convinces Sadduqim to, uh, to, um, to bring back Yoshua ben Prachia from Egypt, uh, he comes back and he brings, he brings his student along and that's when Yeshu goes off the derech according to, according to some views. That's the Gemara tells the story if, that's really, if that Yeshu is really Jesus is another debate. Um, it's during this period that Shimon ben Shetach makes a special decree that's very famous and, and actually lasts forever. Right now, the situation of the common Jew, this is going to sound very relevant to our times, is appalling ignorance. Even if they would be from if they could be from but they don't know enough now and so he makes a new decree a very significant one that in every region there have to be teachers teaching the children Torah and you think well Pshita Pshita in English the best duh, translation yes. duh uh, Pshita is duh obviously you do that we're used to such a thing our institutions that we have schools and that we, we put a big primacy on these schools that dates back to this Takana no Jewish child without a Jewish education. That dates back to this important period. A father has to now send his son, once they're at least six or seven, or, or of age when they can understand. Um, the future, in other words, always depends on chinuch banim. If we have no children, there's no future. Wasn't that a, I mean, the story of the Belzer Rebbe and the escape and the, 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 the having the child and raising this child and nurturing him uh, so that he, he can now be the next Rebbe. And it's all about the future. I, I point this out 
when I guide places like Yad Vashem, um, there is immense amounts of money channeled to Holocaust education and other kinds of activities. I'm not criticizing the institution of Holocaust education. I see its importance for all the obvious reasons, but I, I, I question the um, disproportionate emphasis on Holocaust education. After all, you know that there are Holocaust museums on six continents, and you can be sure they're working on Antarctica. Got to get the penguin angle. Uh, it's black and white. The, um, the, um, uh, the, um, no. No. But there are over 60 Holocaust museums in the world. And there are huge fortunes dedicated towards, towards remembering what at the end of the day are a bunch of finite lessons that we can learn about the Holocaust and very little money in Jewish education. And this is not a pitch to help Rabbi Brickman raise money for Derach. It's for Jewish education across the board. We don't have chinuch, we don't have a next generation. And for some, pe some reason, people don't recognize that. That's, 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 that's a lesson of this, of this stage in history. Alexander Yanai goes on rampages. He's the guy, anybody learned Mishnah Sukkah? He's the one who antagonizes the Jews and the, 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 the Shomer Torah and mitzvahs and, and, and who comes in and mocks them with, uh, with certain practices that are rabbinic and they in turn pelt him with their esrogim. Nobody knows the, the Mishnah where they pelt him with esrogim. It's a famous Mishnah. Anyway, he's the one and it leads to a bloodbath. He sends his henchmen out and they murder a bunch of Jews that day. In one particular scenario that's horrific, he, um, he gathers 8,000 Shomer Torah and mitzvahs one day and crucifies them. Crucifixion actually was, um, was the cruelest form of execution long before there was a person by the name of Yashka. Uh, this was a mode of death. It was particularly cruel because a person didn't die instantly. Their, what they did was the weight of their body, the force of gravity, forced their lungs to, to collapse. And over the course of three, four days, they slowly suffocated. What about Burning. What was that? What about uh, it's at least quicker. You don't have three days of agonizing suffocation. I mean, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll take door number four, Bob. You know, I don't know. You know, for me, I'll, I'll take this, not this, not that, not the other one either. But, um, you know, as far, if you had to go, crucifixion was one of the worst ways uh, to go. Um, they slowly perished and their wives and children were forced to watch. A terribly cruel individual. In other words, Hellenized. That was the nature of the Greek society. You're either with us and if you're against us, we're going to torture you mercilessly. <coughs> This is the peak of success for the Hellenized Tzedukim. It's from this point on they decline and, and they never recover. They interestingly never left the literature. They had all kinds of ideology. We talked about this the other day. They went against the, the, the Prussian, they went against the normative Jews and they wanted to do so. They felt guilty because they were still Jewish and they wanted to form their own sect. They, this is really what Hashem wants. And they developed the whole system, but tellingly, it really shows you something that they um, you know, never left literature because they didn't really believe in it. Again, they threw the arrow and drew the bullseye. And, um, and they have no legacy. They have later groups, <coughs> later sects will come up in the Jewish people. Who people will sometimes say, oh, that's like the Tzaduki. You know who says this all the time? Reformed Jews. Say, oh, look, we're sectarian, reformed conservative Orthodox. Look, back then they were too. Tzaduki and Prushi. We're the modern day Tzaduki. They can only dream of being modern-day tzedukim. At least the tzedukim knew some Torah. I mean, they had some basis within the Torah, even though they were totally different. Totally, each one rel relevant to their own historical context. The tzedukim did arguably more damage. They probably did a lot more damage. I mean, like, the reform public assimilation, but became more, like, vicious. How about each is each is bad in their own unique way? <laughs> I mean, because you could really line up, you could do a... Uh, you're right, they're different. They're different, but uh, pretty, pretty, both pretty damaging. You're right. But if it wasn't for the Tzuki, we'd have the second temple still. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. They, 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 yeah, they destroyed the second temple. 
Yanai dies. He says to his wife, you should be the next leader. And in an extraordinary uh, move that was against the Torah, because women are not supposed to be leaders. We talked about Devorah, and we talked about Italia as being exceptions to the rule and not good models for this. Um, she's coronated queen. Hmm? She's coronated queen, and it's all the shame Shemaim. She's a major tzedekah. She's a righteous woman, and as queen, what she effectively does is grant all rights and powers and privileges to her husband, to her brother, Shimon ben Shetach, and all of his rabbinic colleagues, basically handing the reins of authority. In other words, she was the figurehead. She was in the Hashmonim family. You needed to be well connected. You needed to have yichus in order to take that position. So she knew she was the man for the job, as it were. And she basically gave the authority over to the to the boys. She ruled for nine years uh, in dates. If you're trying to figure, put this on the on the, on the she's it's, it, the year is about 57 before the Common Era. So if you're doing some math, that would make it 127 years. Sarah's age, 127 years before the Horvan, that she becomes uh, the new power on the block. She's a beloved figure. She's ma she manages to, she, the tzedukim recognize her virtue. The, the, the rabbis, of course, uh, completely uh, admired her. And, and, and she leads the, arguably, only nine-year window of, uh, of, of time in the entire 420 years of the Second Temple period that life is pretty good. Hold the thought for just a moment. Let me just, let me just finish the thought. Um, she, basically, the, the, there's peace. There's no war. Uh, the Gemara in Tainis tells us that those years, rain fell. When's the, when is it called Gishme Bracha? When is the optimal time for rain to fall? Two times a week. When? It makes so much sense if you think about it. Shabbos Kodesh. Shabbos Kodesh and Tuesday night. Gishme Bracha. Why? It's so logical. We of asphalt, we we our generation of asphalt are so are spoiled rotten. We don't even appreciate what we have nowadays. But in pre-modern world, the pre-modern world, it was all about traveling. And when you traveled, you were in the boats. You were in the mud. You're in the mud. You can't travel in the rain. So on Shabbos, you don't travel. So it's Gishmei Bracha. We only want the rain. It's not inconvenient. And why Tuesday? Oh, because that's because that's the end of the because when did everybody travel historically? Sunday Around Monday. Sunday and Monday, market day, which was also the day that Ezra decreed specifically creation Torah those days because that's when Jews go to town. But Tuesday night is in the middle of market day. People aren't traveling. They're traveling on Sunday till Monday. They're traveling on Wednesday to Thursday. Tuesday night's perfect for for, for uh, rain. Less mud. And that's, and that's it's a sign, the Gemara illustrates the sign of the virtue of these days, which Lomsiot is the Malka, uh, is reflected in the fact that Hashem sends his rain. Uh, rain in general, anybody learn Tainis here? Rain in general is how we know in Eretz Yisrael particularly that we're doing um, what Hashem wants. And when Hashem is pleased with us, he, he sends not only rain, but he sends productive rains that nurture, nurture uh, healthy crops. And they come in a way that inconvenience us least that's why when it rains on Shabbos, you know something must be going right. Like that, what do you say, Abby? Um, I checked it out of you. You keep going? Okay. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. And if not, then not. The, uh, where, where does it say a woman can't be a leader? Also, Megillah. It's not that she, what, Shrava Benashim, the post can talk about it. It's a sugya. It's not, it's, it's inherent, and some of us did it in my in my uh, country. So, class, Kol Kfuda Basmelech Prima is a pasuk in Tehillim. A woman's 
domain is in the home, which is not a put down. And modern modern ears hear that, hear that as a put down. It's actually a great compliment. Uh, they play different roles in life. Men men are the ones who are out there in the world. Women are the ones who are quietly behind the scenes, like Rifki Maynard running the whole show. Because who's look at Parshas told us again? Who's really the mover and shaker who determines the course of Jewish history? It's not Yitzchak, it's not Yaakov, it's not Esav, it's Rivka. The uh, the queen lays dying, and her own son. She has these two boys, good for nothings in different ways. Aristobulus and, and Hyrcanus. They all have the same names, all very Greek, and they're both Tzedukim in different ways. Aristobulus is the warrior type. He's out there with with, uh, with the Tzedukim. Hyrcanus is the pampered wimp inside. Inside, she wants Hyrcanus to be the ruler. Aristobulus threatens her. Um, which was typical of the Greeks. They had no scruples, no morality. They'd even threaten their own dying mother. And Aristobulus threatens her to try to grab power. Uh, Hyrcanus asserts himself. She dies and war erupts. And the two brothers, it's literally a civil war between brothers. They're each vying for power. And the rabbis more or less recede to the background because they don't care. It's bad this way and it's bad that way. Right? Not, no, nobody's going to win this one. And it's with this background that they go fighting for years. And at one point, one is on top of the other. There's a famous story at this time. It's the reason for the prohibition of raising swine in Eretz Yisrael. Uh, that, that famous story takes place when the, uh, when, when, the, when the different factions are fighting or warring it out. But the new power on the block that I mentioned a few minutes ago, they call them Rome, are just rising up. And one of the Roman warriors, Pompeius, sees what's going on. And he says, you know what? You got the Jews totally divided, split up. This is dangerous. Listen to this and listen. Think about our situation today. The Jews are at each other's throats, and the Roman, <coughs> the Roman stood in the sidelines, lines, rubbing his hands and licking his lips and saying, "I'm going to move in for the kill." And he makes an alliance with Hyrcanus, and he makes an alliance with Aristobulus, and both of them forge a pact, and they each think that, "Oh, he's going to come in and help me." And be careful of forging any kind of alliance with a, with a non-Jewish power, especially if he happens to descend from, Rome descends from, Esau, not going to come out well. And Pompeius basically, you know, the friend of my friend, of, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Not true in this case. He basically moves in and, and, and destroys them both. Aristobulus eventually is murdered. Hyrcanus is a puppet figure. He's such, he's such a weak character, though. He's not a threat to anybody. And this is the beginning of the Roman takeover. And the end of the Hashmonaim, the short-lived Hashmonaim dynasty that doesn't even last 100 years. And now the Romans are the, new, are the new ruler on the block. But keep track of this now. The Romans are ruling here. <clears throat> What's changed is the government. But the Jews are still living here. There's still Tzedukim, there's still sects, there's still factions here. There's still the Beis Mikdash, and the Avod is taking place Beis Mikdash, And there are tensions and difficulties, but we're, not, we're nowhere near the Chorban. Right? The Chorban still has, has, uh, has not yet taken place. If you want to see when Pompeius takes, uh, takes over, what do I have on the, on the timeline? Uh, that would be about the year 30, in the, 30 before the, no, excuse me, 30, 63 before the Common Era, or 30 before the Common Era. It's hard to parse these things because uh, of the contradictory uh, timelines. Fine. <clears throat> How are the Romans different? What is the Roman niche in the world? Um, they're very Greek, but not entirely. Let me, let me make just very briefly a, a quick difference. The Greeks celebrate the body and the wisdom, aesthetics, the, our, our physical enjoyment of this world. The Romans took all that, but they upped it. The Romans were, were brutes like bears. They, um, they hunted. They divided and conquered the world. Vini, vidi, uh, vici. 
right? As, as, as they say, they were ideologues. Their goal was, it was very Asab. They were all about physicality, all into the, which is used word, Gashmias of the world. But there was an idealism, warped though it was, all its own. Anybody been around the Roman Empire? You've toured, you've toured Eretz Israel. What are Roman buildings that still stand from the Roman era? Uh, the, the Western Wall. Western Wall is from that period. What else? Caesarea. Caesarea for sure. All Herodian buildings, all Herodian structures. Masada is from the Roman oh, times. Uh-huh. Okay. All over the Roman Empire, which was vast, dominated the world in its heyday. Um, the Romans had this idea that they were going to redeem humanity from the great evil of the world. What's the great evil of the world? Religion. Nature. Religion was certainly bad, but they were okay with pagan religions. They said, yeah, you do your thing, you nuts. That's okay. That, that didn't bother them so much, as long as you didn't attack Roman honor. But um, their idea was they're going to liberate humanity from nature. And they did so, they were brilliant. They were master, hold the thought for just a moment. You're going to remember this time? Yeah. Give me the, okay, yeah. Uh, they, they did it through innovative architecture. The Romans, um, you know, to a large degree today, our society is a Roman society. They innovated, they brought the first, they had the first world indoor, uh, the truth is they had this before the Romans. The Romans made institutional the lotion of latrines. What's a latrine? Bathroom. Indoor bathrooms, do you realize how that changed the world? You had to schlep all the way out of town every single time you need to go to the bathroom. What if you had indigestion? Well, you had to live by the outhouse. You couldn't even be in your home. You couldn't even sit and learn. Right? The Romans brought, irrig- they brought irrigation. They brought aqueducts. You've been around in Caesarea. Who's hiked along the route? You can see the, the aqueducts of the Romans. Anybody been to the um, Roman aqueducts that are south of Jerusalem, that, that fed into Jerusalem? You can see them today. You see remnants of this. Do you realize what that meant? In the, eight, in the pre-Roman world, you had to live by a tell. A tell was near a sweet underground aqueduct, a water site. That means you were totally limited. Now the Romans meant you could build anywhere in the world, and you brought the water to where you lived, instead of you having to go where the water was. They built cities that were so logical, it boggles the mind. When in the past, the cities were all over the place, the Romans said, no, let's make order of the physical world, because they celebrated the physical world. That's why Yerushalayim is, is a typical Roman city in this regard. You have a major um, axis, a major boulevard that's north-south called the, in the old city? You really know? Cardo. Still called that today. That's the classic. In every Roman city, you had a cardo. You had an east-west axis called the Decumanus. And the rest of the streets built perfectly were grid streets. What are classic Roman cities that you know today? Manhattan, Manhattan Toronto, Brooklyn Beach. Beach. That's all following the Roman structure. In the center of a Roman city was the civic center. Why? That's where all your needs were taken care of. It makes sense that they're easy and convenient to find. Their goal was to fi- make life easy, easier for everybody. And they were liberating humanity, trying to elevate people. Um, they made every city the same so that you could travel anywhere in the world that you wanted to, and you always felt like you were in Rome. I call it the holiday in effect. Right? You, always go, you, can go to, you can go to Bangkok, you can go to Timbuktu, you can go to Buenos Aires, and you always get those little like soaps that you get in the shampoo. You always feel, you know, all, all the basic accoutrements of modern luxuries. America is basically modern-day Rome, to a large degree. You can see this. Rome also thought that they knew better than all those backwards, backwards locals, and they would go in and say, we'll, we'll upgrade your lives. Um, they'll do that now, too, with the Jews. You'll see in a moment. We'll, we'll tell a story. Um, sort of like America going in and fighting wars that it probably has no business fighting. It's like, oh, we're, we're Democrats. We'll teach you backwards, third world, fourth world gum, um, countries. The, the, the true secret of... Yeah, when they went into Iraq, they, yeah, the, the, the naivete of going in and saying, yeah, you'll, get Amer- you'll get American democracy style. You'll love it. 
You know, it doesn't work. Not every model can be uh, transported effectively. Um, that was that was the, the the Roman system. They had a sophisticated. You have to realize the government system of Rome was unprecedented. It was sophisticated. It was by election. The whole notion of democracy was brought in by the Rome by the Romans. Um, they uh, they had a legal apparatus. They had they had um, you know that they built the world's first complex road system. What do roads do? You can travel easily. Transportation. You can trade. Business is possible with 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 complex roads. They had roads. They had a road system. All roads led to Rome. That meant you had an effective capital that could function as such. That was never the case in, in the, in the pre-Roman world. So they revolutionized the world. They were brutes. They were nasty. If you played by their rules, they were okay. And the Jews never did. Asaph, son of the Yaakov, was the story of Roman rule. And they ruled Eretz Israel, And it's one struggle after the other. The, uh, they had the world's first professional army. 25-year conscription. That never happened before. They had 24, sometimes 28 legions. And the Romans start having their own local governors who ruled from Eretz Yisrael. Antipater was such a governor, and then his son eventually rose up, and his name, we said, was Herod. He's originally a member of a gang of bandits, and the early story of Herod, I really should tell you this, is uh, they execute a guy in the north, just randomly. And the Sanhedrin, which effectively is the Jewish authority, they send for him to try him. You're not allowed to just randomly execute somebody, even if you think that the guy was deserving of death penalty, you have to, he has to have due trial. That's how the Jews work. That's how any legal system works. And Herod was not into a legal system. So he comes down, swaggering into the Sanhedrin with his Roman haircut and his, 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 his weapons on his side. And he said, yeah, you guys want to try me? The, almost the entire Sanhedrin, um, they were chachamim, they were but in this case they were weak, and they all recoiled in fear. Herod was 15 years old. And there's one, uh, he's, he's a young man at the time, there's one brave member of the Sanhedrin who stands up and he criticizes his colleagues. He said, you will all rue the day that you allowed yourself to cower in fear before this man because if you fear this man, that means you lack fear of a Kodesh Baruch Because he stood up and criticized him. Herod had tremendous respect for him. Later, Herod will, will execute the entire Sanhedrin and he'll spare this man. His name was Shammai. Early, early story of Shammai. <clears throat> Herod eventually goes to Rome. He becomes, he rubs shoulders with Caesar, uh, with Julius Caesar, with Mark Anthony, Cleopatra, Caesar Augustus. All kinds of stories and intrigue. I don't have time. I'm going to skip that with, with, with you guys. He knows the Senate. Eventually, after he's obsequious, he, he, he pays for favors, and they crown him king of Judea. He's not really a king. In fact, he's the son of converts. He's also an Evid. Uh, the Gemara Baba Basra talks about him and his status. Um, but there's something really wise. See, the Romans recognize him. He's a loyal subject. He loves Rome. He's into paganism. Um, and so they say, Herod, you're exempt from paying taxes. Herod's no fool. He comes back to Eric's Israel and he collects taxes. In fact, he's as brutal, as brutal as any Roman. And he collects exorbitant taxes from all the Jews. And if they won't pay him, they'll, they'll murder them. So what means if he collects taxes but doesn't pay taxes, he becomes the wealthiest man in the ancient world. And with his wealth... He builds a legacy. And that's where he builds the world's first artificial port city that he names, of course, for the king, Caesarea, Caesarea. Uh, he builds a fortress in the desert where no men can reasonably live, and that's Masada. He builds seven fortresses all over Eretz Israel. I sometimes take people to, uh, to some of the other ones. He names one Kipros for his mother over Yericho and others. Um, he, no, that's not, that's not Herodian per se. 
He probably built the building around the Mars Papela. Um, and his crowning masterpiece was rebuilding, commissioning the rebuilding. He was smart enough to know not to do it himself. Only Jews, only holy Jews, and only Kohanim in the center could rebuild Yerushalayim. And the Gemara Baba Basha is a very famous sugi you should look into in greater depth. The Gemara Baba Basha tells the story. How could a, a, a Russia Morsha like Herod be Zolcha to rebuild the base of Mikdash? So it tells a story about Herod, and I'm going to fill in a little of the details from Josephus, the historian. Herod was this weird guy, see? He was paranoid, and he really wanted power, and he felt that everybody was vying for his power. So he had a very easy solution. If he felt you were vying for his power, or even suspected you, he killed you off. And so we wound up killing off many Jews. Friends, colleagues, advisors, wives, sons, almost everybody in a circle, unless they were totally obsequious, uh, got killed, got bumped off by Herod. But poor Herod, he felt that nobody loved him. So Josephus says he used to play, seriously, I can imagine the psychological profile of this guy. Um, so Herod used to dress up in beggar's rags and go begging in the streets and pretend he wasn't anybody, and he'd go over to the, poor guy, poor, the next poor love, and he'd say, what do you think of Herod? And he expected, you know, flowery praise. Oh, he builds, and he's so magnificent. And the guy who usually spoke the truth, a pity the fellow, he was executed. He goes over to Baba Bhutta, one of the surviving rabbis, who, instead of killing him, Herod instead had his eyes blotted out with porcupine pins. And um, he asked Baba Bhutta, what do you think of Herod? Tell me about Herod. And Baba Bhutta does not take the bait. He won't say anything negative about Herod. And suddenly Herod has a moment of truth. And he says, uh-oh, you're the real thing. You mean these rabbis are really tzaddikim like they say, after all? Maybe I made a mistake by killing them? Uh-oh, what do I do? He asks Baba ben Muta, what does he do? And he reveals his identity. And Baba ben says, you extinguish the light of the world. Kibisa You've extinguished the light of the world by killing off so many rabbis. Now busy yourself in rekindling the light of the world, the base of Mikdash. Rebuild it. So Herod, the second temple is falling apart. Remember the first version? There were four different versions of the base of Mikdash. The initial one under Zubavel, Ketzbavel, Zubavel, the rebuilding under Shimon and Sadiq, the rebuilding under Hashmanim. And now Herod, the whole thing is falling apart, takes upon himself to build the most spectacular building in antiquities. And so he does. And it's a long-term project, and it's, it's the famous project. The Herodian version of the base of Mikdash is actually the version that we have in Meseches Midos. The Mishnah that records for us in loving detail all the details of what the base Mikdash was like is actually describing the Herodian version, the latest version of the Second Temple of the Second Temple period. Avi, in what way did Herod merit to build the base? That's the million-dollar question. Thank you very much. And the answer I already gave you. I telegraphed the answer without actually spelling it out. See, we in Torah, we in Judaism, we understand that there are, is a major principle that guides history. What's the major principle in two words that guides history? It's at the beginning. Hachet Gorim. Where do we find it in this week's parsha? Katonti. We read this morning. Maybe I've used up all my merits. All my schuyos, Rashi says, go look at Rashi by Katonti. Uh, maybe I've used up my merits and I don't deserve anymore. It's all about sin, virtue. We're so into the virtue stuff that we call it tshuva, and we understand that all of history rests on tshuva. When Herod had that moment when he says, uh-oh, I made a mistake, what have I done? Chazal say he redeemed himself momentarily, and because of that he was zochet to rebuild the base of Mikdash. Even the Herod and even though Herod's next thought was, nah, never mind, I like the old way, and he went right back to his 
old evil ways, the fact that he had hero tshuva at that moment meant that he was, he was worthy. Chazal trying to teach us an idea that even thinking about tshuva is so meritorious that, it, that, 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 that such a person could be seen as worthy. Um, the base of Mikdash is... The Roman archives say, repeat what effectively it says in the Gemara Baba Basra, the Misha Lo Ra'a, Binyan Shel Hordus, the person who's never seen the building that Herod built, has never seen a beautiful building in his days. The second base of Mikdash. This is the second base of Mikdash. The first base of Mikdash, no comparison, was much greater. But we don't have records of that to the same degree. We have the Roman archives, in, the, in this case, um, v- verifying the greatness of the of the space of Mikdash. Now, Herod is alive. Yeah, go ahead, Avi. Sorry, um, it didn't Fine. seem like Herod was doing like Teshuvah or had that one Teshuvah moment. Just, right, it's like, a, it's a, it's it seems like he felt like a human Here's the message, here's thing. the message. Don't think more about Basha, but the message is like this. If even a despicable Russia like Herod could just for a second think Teshuvah and then change his mind, and even so he's rewarded so generously by Kadosh Baruch Hu, Allah Kama how much more so would we, who actually might even make a little bit more Teshuvah, merit reward? That's how we're supposed to look at that. Um, Herod is alive in, the, in, in, in great times, the great Chachamim. Um, Shammai is there, and he, he, he respects Shammai ever since that earlier moment. But there's another guy on the block who actually has a Rikos Yamim. There are five people in history to live 120 years. Who are the five? And that's a sign of perfection and greatness. Moshe Rabbeinu is exactly 120. The disciple who we've mentioned, we saw him a few days ago, who's on par with Moshe Rabbeinu, was Ezra, so for the 120 years. And this next figure was, was the third fellow to live 120 uh-huh. years, Hillel. Hillel Zakin, Hillel the Elder, who is great beyond description, and we don't have time to really go into, uh, in my real history class, I actually go into whole biogra- biographies about these fascinating figures. We don't have that luxury in this, in this time slot, but um, Herod teaches some of the great mitos in all times. Somebody makes a bet in the Gemara on Shabbos that he can get Herod angry. It's not a good use of money. There's nobody's going to make no, Herod no. lose his... Lose his Hil- Hillel. Hil- <laughs> I meant Herod. Thank you. I, I said Hillel. I meant Hillel. Herod's they, pretty easy to get. Yeah, <laughs> Herod, Herod, gets, Herod is angry. Hillel never gets angry. And the guy in Arab Shabbos comes up to, to start up with Hillel. There's no, there's no doing. Now, Hillel becomes the Nasi. He's the last of the... Of the I'm going to end with this today. He's the last of the leaders of the Jews that are called the Zugos. And initially with Hillel, they appoint? Well, you'd think that that would be the answer, but you know the way I'm setting up, and it can't possibly be. It's Hillel and Menachem. But unfortunately, Menachem early on goes off the derech and serves Herod. So then they appoint another great, at this time, a great figure, Akavia ben Mahalalel, who has a mission in Perkeavos. But there's a problem with Akavia that I'm not going to get into. He re- refuses to yield to the majority opinion, which you're not supposed to do. And then later they appoint Shammai. And it's Hillel and Shammai. They're the 30th line in the Masorah. What's the Masorah? The, the Remember I passed out the sheet of the tradition from Moshe Rabbeinu down. Yeah. They're in that line of, of... The oral tradition these days is only in code being written down, but it's basically still oral. And they're the next leaders of the Jews. They continue the machlokas over smicha, but now, see, it's been steady decline. We talked about the decline and the, and the outbreak of machlokas. Now, between Hillel and Shammai, there's not just one machlokas, but three. The three machlokas, I'm not going to get to where they are. If you want, I'll email me and I'll tell you what they are. Um, now that there starts to be machlokas, Hillel realizes Torah's in trouble. We have to, re- we have to rethink things. We're going to have to reorganize the system of Torah to make it manageable and more memorable so that we don't lose it. 
So it's under Hillel's leadership that Chazal, the rabbis, Chazal stands for Chachamim Zichon and Livracha, that Chazal takes some ideas and he, he takes, some say there were 400, some say it was 600 Sidre Mishnah, and he reorganizes them into a neat number six orders. What are the six orders called in Hebrew? Shas. The invention of Shas, all of Torah organized into six sections. That now begins. And we start to see the, the, the creation of what eventually will become the Mishnayos. Mishnayos were not invented overnight. They did back to this period. When Shammai dies, they reorganize. They appoint Hillel, the singular leader, as the Nasi. And from this time, his descendants will be the Nasi. That's a figurehead uh, uh, position that lasts all the way down to Rabbi Yehuda Nasi. The... Uh, Last story I'm going to tell today. The Romans are still there, and they're not happy. And they got Herod, and then after Herod leaves, there are other wicked governors that they have ruling. One of them is a fellow by the name of Pontius Pilate. And the Christians make a big to-do about him. That's why his name is familiar to you, maybe. But, um, but he was, Josephus describes him. I'm going to tell the last story to try to put some greater understanding on this tension that exists between Rome and, and the Jews. And it's certainly, ultimately, the tension between Esau and Yaakov. But it's like this. Here's the story. Pontius Pilate becomes the governor of Yerushalayim. And he comes in full of this, and it's really illustrated the principle I said before, this, we're Romans, they're going to help upgrade these backwards Jews. We know better for them, what's good for them. And he finds what he thinks is tax money. He says, tax money, fantastic. Let me take it. And with Roman ingenuity, I'm going to build an, I'm going to give an irrigation aqueduct system, and it's going to upgrade these Jews' material lives. They will be so grateful to me. And that's what he does. Problem is, see, that wasn't really tax money. Anybody know what it was? Meister? Yeah, worse. It's uh, Yeah, no, it's sculling. It's sculling. It's money designated for what's called Bedekabais, for upgrade in the temple itself. And the money has Kedusha. And it's not meant for uh, other non-Kadosh purposes. Anybody who takes out Hektesh is actually transgressing a Torah prohibition. Anybody know what that's called? Me'ila. Uh, but he's not Jewish. He's not Jewish, but the concept still pertains. He takes the money and uses it for it for, for aqueducts. Come on, it's so bad. Okay, fine. He means well. The Jews don't get it. This is the story Josephus tells. We're talking about Josephus on, on Sunday. Uh, he's an unreliable narrator, but there's no reason to doubt this story. It really it really helps understand helps illustrate the under, misunderstanding between the Romans and the Jews on a fundamental basis. One morning, the Jews are protesting in the street, and Pontius Pilate gets up and says, "What's going on?" And his henchmen said, "Well, the Jews are really upset with you." And he says, upset with me? Maybe making me a cake, but not upset, not upset with me? What are they upset over? He said, well, you know, you took their money. And you, he said, those ingrates. And he sent his flunkies out, and they murdered a bunch of Jews. And the Jews protested more, and back and forth. See, on a certain level, Esav never understood the Kedusha of Yaakov. That's why he willingly sold the Bechorah, and he gave up the Bracha, and, 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 and he did give up the broth. He didn't really want it. That scream was, was a recognition when he screams at the end of the Parshas. Parshas told us it's recognition that he never deserved it in the first place. He's a man of this world. And, and what we see now unfold, unfolding is almost, it's not inevitable, but we see the bloodbaths that are about to ensue are coming down to this ultimate confrontation of the physical versus the spiritual. And when there's only physicality, there's no way they can fathom spirituality and they can't even allow it to exist because they can't tolerate it. It represents a threat to their well-being, their own existence. And that's really, in a nutshell, what the Roman Empire was and how they saw the Jews. And we'll talk about this and all the events leading up to Chorban Baishani on Sunday.